Greetings. Welcome to the Asana Kitchen Podcast. I'm David Garig. And before we get started, just want to let you know I have an amazing online course coming up. It's Mysore Foundations. And it meets on Tuesdays and Fridays for six weeks starting October 19th. And um, it's a preparation for my regular Mysore classes, kind of a prerequisite uh, introductory course. But it's also an excellent uh, just grounding in the foundations of the Ashtanga practice. So you could do it um, intending to go on to my Mysore classes, but or also just as a standalone uh, learning experience. Uh, you can check that out on my website. Okay, um, so today's topic is um, about practice, how to make an effective practice, and also defining practice. So um, starting off, that... Uh, the, um, in the Yoga Sutras, it's called Abhyasa, practice, and it, it means these things. Uh, it means the kind of typical th things that you would associate with the word practice, like habit, drill. Um, this is the word Abhyasa, is habit, drill, practice, discipline. Okay, and, um, and so... This is practice. It's uh, your, your daily routine, your habit. You're uh, going through your series as a, a kind of uh, exercise of a series of drills or exercises that you're established in and returning to um, daily. And then, though, the, what I love about yoga is that, that that definition of practice might suffice for, I don't know, almost anything like bicycling or uh, playing basketball or um, doing something more creative um, like um, pottery or something or or something uh, more technical but with yoga see this is part of what separates yoga or differentiates it is that it, it takes the it elevates the idea of practice it goes beyond uh like a drill or a discipline, and it says, here's a beautiful definition, that the effort practice, abhyasa, is the effort of the mind to remain in its unmodified condition of purity. Yeah, so it's, uh, and in Vyas Houston, he says it's the effort to remain there. And there is um, in the state of, um, as the seer, um, as the seer to the world, in, in my intrinsic essence. So that swarupa, um, as seer to the world. So it's kind of, uh, so that pra then practice is the, this kind of constant effort to identify with the most profound aspect of yourself, with your intrinsic essence, which is... Um, kind of the all-inclusive author of existence, that that is the, the self. Um, so it's the, the, the large self versus the small self. Yeah, so that, that's amazing that yoga just cuts right to the heart of it. So, so it's not, practice isn't just like perfecting my triangle pose or working my breathing or you know, getting my first series together. It, it's a deep exploration of self 
until I come to the most profound, the whole root of, uh, of me and of existence itself. And along those lines, then, um, practice is an inculcation of, of a truth conveyed in the sacred writings by means of repeating the same word or the same passage. The, and when you look at the sacred texts, like the, uh, every single one of them has the, this one thing in common. And, and I mean like the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas, the uh, Yoga Sutras, the Yoga Vashishta, so many sacred texts are there. And, but their one common theme is that they are descriptions of self. So, they're, so the, the inculcation of a truth that's conveyed in these um, sacred writings is always pertaining to the intrinsic essence as seer. So this is practice. And then along those lines, and I like this, that it's by, by means of repeating the same word or the same passage, and then so practice is study or repeated reading or repeated or permanent exercise, um, repetition or reduplication. And so you could say that there's a kind of two-pronged aspect to us that have a hatha yoga practice, right? So we have this whole physical thing that we're doing, the postures, the breathing, the energetic seals and... Um, we're doing those in such a way that they help us to, to experience what we're studying in the sacred texts. Like, and these um, kind of, we're, we're studying the Upanishads and the Yoga Sutras and these things to, um, as the definition said, inculcate or absorb, to take in what these, um, the passages, like the, these very specific uh, passages in the text that speak to us about what constitutes the sacred dimension of existence. And, the, and those two things are connected, okay? So that the, the, the physical practice that we do of the asanas and the philosophy or the, uh, the intellectual understanding that we're trying to come to as our uh, real basis for study of yoga. And it's not every student that really makes a deep, uh, direct connection between, say, the way that I do my transitions into my po poses, how I get into Marichyasana, or how I do a drop back, how I come up into headstand, and then what, how I'm uh, working with being in my pose, like how, what's happening, what are my thought process, what is, What's going on when I'm in um, headstand or uh, Bhuja Pidasana? And the whole process, the physical process that I'm going through is influenced by and um, directed towards this um, deeper philosophical understanding of my actions and my, um, what's the workings of my mind. Okay, so that's a sort of um, setup for like what is practice. But then, the, then what we're really going into today is what makes for an effective practice. See, and this is, um, is really important to consider. And I'm going to go down this uh, kind of list with you.
because Ashtanga, it's, it's a very, uh, you can say, it has the potential to be a very effective and powerful system for learning yoga. Uh, but the, I would say that the interpretation, the, the, the more um, accepted or conventional interpretation of Ashtanga um, has some serious blind spots that need addressing if the practice is going to be as effective um, you're going to optimize the possibilities for the practice. And I'm going to give you some examples. Like um, there's the saying, the classic saying about Ashtanga that, or that came from the teacher, which was that do your practice and all is coming. Okay, and so that, that one statement has been taken very uh, wrong or uh, it's been mis it's a misleading statement because it sounds like that so the Ashtanga recipe is to get on your mat six days a week and go through your series um, very um, almost metronomically like you um, <clears throat> you five breaths in each poses and vinyasa between each one and you do the whole series in order and um, and you don't deviate and and things like thinking or words or putting language to that are um, actively frowned upon. It's like thinking or stopping or um, kind of uh, really think, yeah, contemplating or um, puzzling through what you're doing is um, somehow interrupting the flow and not um, seen as a positive thing. Okay, and I'm going to, I'm borrowing a little bit from an article I um, came across on, um, it's actually for musicians, on what makes effective um, practice for a musician, but it completely um, aligns with the whole, uh, my ideas of what makes for uh, effective practice that um, I have kind of observed and developed over my decades of teaching. And so the, it's, practice needs the word deliberate, okay, deliberate practice. So if you do your deliberate practice, then all is coming. And so, um, so the, just practicing a lot, just practicing a lot is not effective in developing skills. <laughs> okay, and this is true for a musician, for a, um, an athlete, and for a yogi, okay? So you can't just repeat the thing, um, just go on there six days a week and do it. Like that will give you some benefit, but it's not, not really what, um, what you need to, for your practice. And so we're gonna define um, deliberate, but I'm gonna just qualify, uh, give you a few little qualifiers too that are quite amazing. But the 10 years is, the kind of minimum amount of time that they say that uh, 10 years of deliberate practice is needed to get to a certain level of mastery on average. And I, that um, definitely aligns with what, what I've observed. So you, you can't expect that um, some mastery or real, um, you'll be super established or grounded in the knowledge after two years, say, or even four or five. It's a long process, okay? And then, um, so natural ability, 
or talent or physical ability doesn't account for success. Okay, so this is very, so this is um, interesting from two angles. One is if, if you are, if you have a lot of natural um, sort of talent for yoga or physical ability, you're strong and flexible, it can do the postures easily, um, you can't just bank on that to really establish yourself in yoga and to practice effectively. Okay, and then from the opposite idea, if you have a harder time, you don't have as much physical ability for whatever reason, that does not then um, exclude you from becoming a master of Hatha Yoga, right? Because success or to, get, to be able to practice effectively isn't based on um, how much talent or ability you have, which is a very... Uh, excellent kind of indicator that it's a just universe, right? Because it would be a very cruel universe if it was just based on, you know, you come out of the womb and your, your, genetic, your genetics make it so you're flexible or strong and then that's what um, gives you success. No, there's something, something else, other qualities that are needed to, um, to have your practice be effective and to, to develop the skills. And we're going to try to look at that. What is, then what is, makes for, if it's not natural ability or talent. Um, okay, but before we do that, um, I want to say this, that the, the most important skill that can be taught to the student by the teacher is, get this people, how to practice. Ha ha. You see, it's not just, they don't, you, the teacher doesn't just teach you to practice. No, it teach you how to practice. And, and what does that mean? Well, it means, um, I mean, it can mean a lot of things uh, and it's worth considering. And I can tell you that I have a system within the system of Ashtanga yoga, right? So Ashtanga is a system and I believe it's a, it's a beautiful, powerful, effective system, but that it needs interpreting. So you need to be taught how to practice that system. And, um, and so um, there, in this article for musicians, there was a few examples of, of what, that, um, what that means. So how to practice, it, for example, is to set manageable and appropriate goals and to set manageable and appropriate goals along a progression of learning, and then to monitor the success or otherwise of the practice strategies. So for me, when that I have, I divide the, the kind of study into two distinct um, modes. And one is the transition, which is vinyasa. So it's like how you get into your pose and then the position itself, and so what? What is the what is the shape? What is the form? And then what do you do while you're in the shape? Like what is the project or the objective? And you see, with Ashtanga, see one of the reasons the system needs interpreting is because you can say that, like even the foundation um, of Ashtanga, the first series, is a. Um, extraordinarily difficult and complex um, kind of asana symphony, right? It's like playing um, you know, one of Beethoven or 
Mozart's grand symphonies, right? And so you, you can't expect to just um, not know anything about yoga and uh, just kind of show up one day and not have thought about all the mechanics of how the body operates and then uh, the complexities that go into the asana and the bio the biomechanical alignment principles. And you, you, yeah, you can't expect to come and then just practice six days a week for six months and then um, have mastered it, right? And it just, it's a very unrealistic recipe. And so, um, so, you, so you have to break things down into um, very manageable exercises or projects and with, with every transition. So, um, like, how to come up into headstand, or uh, how to jump through, how to come up in forearm balance, or how to take um, lotus, even. Uh, just really basic things. I have all these um, very systematic steps in the process of how to get into the pose. And then also the pose itself. And you see in Ashtanga, the more conventional or accepted way to do things is to just do your, your best try at the hardest version of every transition and every pose. And, and if you just repeat that enough times, regardless of what kind of happens to your body, like what kind of alignment you have um, in the process, that that's your best practice strategy. And, and so for me, I, um, I take it in steps and I have a kind of motto that um, it's not just repetition, okay? Because that's that kind of do your practice and all is coming. No, it's deliberate repetition. So it's um, basically, in a basic way, repeating only what you want to reinforce. So repeating a movement or a posture um, that, and doing what you want to reinforce. And so this takes um, making like easier versions of the poses. Uh, and that's where kind of props come in and different modifications and different ways of seeing how to do the poses. Okay, and, and, and it's still all very much Ashtanga. It's just that it gets a different look because you're, you're modifying and you're uh, choosing out suitable projects, suitable goals, suitable exercises uh, within uh, all the different puzzles that come in a series, all the different puzzles of transitions, all the different puzzles of asanas, okay? And then um, I love this um, idea is that um, monitor success or otherwise of the practice strategies. Okay, so that, that you, there's a, you've got some clarity about the goals, about the objectives, like what constitutes uh, a, a powerful or an effective or a, um, a right transition into a pose or a right um, form when you're in the pose and how, and being able to monitor like how close you're coming to that, um, that the right transition or right pose, and then also how you're um, 
the step that you're working on, how effective is it? And how well able to replicate that step are you? And then assessing like when a step is too hard or too easy. And so, so like when to add a more challenging step or when to back, um, back it out. Okay, and um, so another thing is that, so that at-home practice, at, so when you're practicing by yourself, which I teach a lot of students that are practicing by themselves, and that's partly my way of approaching the practice works well, because I give such specific guidelines that the person at home can really um, take a hold of what, of the guidance I'm providing and, and apply it. And, and it says, at home practice is successful if the teacher gives specific instructions about what needs to be worked on, how to do it, and what the result should be. Okay, and so this is very uh, different. Deliberate practice is very different than do your practice and all is coming, right? Very specific instructions on what needs to be um, worked on, how to do it, and what the result should be. So systematic approaches yield better results than free practice. See, this is very important. Okay, and this is what I'm driving home to you is that the um, just going through your series is not it. There has to be a systematic approach. And one idea, one about like, what is that systematic approach? Well, so, so you repeat um, difficult passages many times until mastery is achieved. Okay, so I have these drills for every transition or, or, or every pose. And um, so you, so, and it's cool because with Ashtanga, you flow through your series and you know, if you had it, if you have it mastered and you're, you've got all your um, kind of objectives for each posture and transition in order, then you can flow through it very nicely. But when you hit rough spots, you slow down or you hesitate and you have to um, kind of break that flow. And so, but that's, but you do that. So you don't just um, ignore those difficult spots. You, you, um, you repeat them many times. And so you, you work in shorter fragments. So it's called fragmenting or chunking, right? Where you take a little um, one transition and repeat it. And you, or you repeat one pose more than just doing the five to eight breaths and, um, and going on to the next. And so that's an essential part of, of practice and, what, and a beautiful part about Mysore practice because it, the, it's purposely uh, individual so that you can do exactly that, which um, is to repeat difficult passages, that, that, right? Rather than just flow through it um, like you do when you're in a lead class and everybody just has to spend the same amount of time in every posture. So... Then um, there's a, a thing they call, which I've definitely um, teach in, with my system within the system. And the, in this article, they call it metacognition. Metacognition. Okay, so there's cognition, which is to recognize or to be aware, right? And, and meta is, it's, it's a higher level. It's like... Um, 
it's a self-awareness, not only um, of not only technical um, elements of your asana, your transition, um, but also of issues related to the learning itself, right? So, so you're able to get a kind of bird's eye view, uh, a, a reflection on the, the quality of your efforts, like, and watching yourself in action as you're doing action, right? So that's this kind of metacognition. And, and so you're able to, so you're able to have self-awareness on um, such learning aspects as concentration, uh, planning, monitoring, and evolution. And so you're, and there's, this is a very key word here, self-monitoring. You see, this is super key to effective practice, is the ability to self-monitor. And this is what I try to teach the student, and um, it takes a long time. You see, and this is partly why it takes 10 years to uh, learn to, be, um, to have a, be really established in deliberate practice, is because um, self-monitoring, it requires for, like ha no, having an objective or a goal or some kind of I, um, no knowledge of what you're trying to achieve with each transition or each position and then being able to assess um, where you are with, with that um, objective, like what kind of challenges are there for you and then what kind of um, steps you need to put in place that are um, not too challenging, but also challenging enough. So there's a whole kind of whole process of self-monitoring that, that you have to learn. And, um, and so the self-monitoring is ability to reflect on what you're doing, how you're doing it, and to consider alternative approaches. Okay, so this is um, very key. All right, and then, um, so another aspect of uh, effective practice is related to this. It's um, visualization or imagery. So I have the, my, um, one of my first things that I tell I teach is, what is your vision? What's your image um, of this transition? Like when you, what's the picture in your mind of it, of this pose? And, and it's kind of like your, your ideal. What represents perfection or, um, or very good to you? And, you, and, you, and so the, the, and the image of it is very separate than the doing of it, right? And so, and you need both things. So a, it's a less effective practice if it's only a kind of you're immersed in doing, right? It's more effective if you're, you're able to come to this kind of metacognition and have a visualization. Uh, it's a, a fully uh, mental construct of what you're trying to do and then proceed um, to try to put that vision into play, okay? And then um, another point is the, that, now get this people, this is a very important uh, thing for Ashtanga, because Ashtanga is such a strict um, and super defined coded system, meaning you do first series in order, right? And then you move on to second series in order. So the, it says, 
intensity in practice is related to interest in a particular pose or transition. Um, and that, see, this is amazing. Intensity of practice is related to the interest, to your own interest in what you are doing, in the very specifics. Like, you got to, if you really want to be intense about your practice, you've got to be very um, curious, very passionate about um, wanting to know those things that you're, you're doing. Okay, and, and so, and it, practice is not, it's lacking in intensity when you're um, kind of given a syllabus and just expected to follow it, okay? Whether you like it or not, it's just like, right? That, and teachers do it in Ashtanga. It's just like, everybody learns all of first series and that's how you do it. And, um, and so, but, but what really brings an intensity, what gets you on fire to practice and uh, motivates you is, is when you're, you're leading that. That yes, you, uh, the system is there, that set sequence and those things to give you a, a structure, right? To help you be disciplined and consistent. And, um, and also so you don't have to think about what to do every day, right? But then, but it can be, go too far and be too strict or too rigid. And, um, and so part of the design of practice, especially as you gain experience, is to kind of follow what, follow what really turns you on and, um, and allow that to kind of uh, fuel your fire for, for practice. Okay, and that's um, in some ways at odds with Ashtanga or something that you have to do a dance with or negotiate this um, sort of respecting the system and um, in and in this um, positive way of like getting the most out of the the structure, but at the same time, like noticing dips in intensity or like when you um, get demotivated by. Um, having to do everything in order just because that's the way um, it's done, rather than kind of honoring your own, um, your own curiosity, your own um, ability to explore the Hatha Yoga technology in your, your own way, and um, to be able to, tr to trust your, your instincts and, um, and your, what you enjoy, what you find um, rad. Right, and I love that idea, um, that definition of ideal, right? Because ideal is almost like become a bad word, where it leads to perfectionism. Like it's a you're holding yourself to too high of a standard, and then it sort of hamstrings you and gets you into a kind of negative self critique. But but the word ideal it means to satisfy one's conception of what represents perfect or very good. Okay, so it's to satisfy your conception of perfection, not um, to satisfy what the objective idea of perfect or some outer idea. No, it's your own conception. Right? And so I love that the science around effective practice recognizes or it bears out that people 
want to practice. So they put their whole self behind it. They get into it when they are kind of leading the study based on what interests them. Okay, so let's, let's return to uh, our word, uh, abhyasa, practice, and um, just try to make some connections here with the range of uh, the scope of the definition, right? Because, so it, abhyasa, it means practice, drill, habit, exercise, or uh, discipline. Right, and, and um, we've been talking about that in this podcast, that it's a deliberate practice. So there's specific exercises that, are, that have objectives, and, and then there's uh, self-regulation, or self-monitoring the, uh, how you're doing and making corrections. So then, though, the yoga is so beautiful because it, it goes beyond that. In some disciplines, that's the end. It's the... You're trying to reach that proficiency. You, you can put the ball in the basket, or you can play that tune. But, um, but, but yoga has this, the effort uh, of the mind to remain in its unmodified condition of purity. So that's uh, exactly yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. Um, that's the mind. That, that sutra translates as the mind in its... Uh, unmodified condition of purity and 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 the experience of, of that you have uh, of the of yourself and the world uh, when you have that um, experience um, and then the other uh, kind of elevated very um, kind of highest or most profound idea of abhyasa practice is the inculcation of a truth conveyed in the sacred writings by means of repeating the same word or the same passage. So it has, and, and so practice is repeated reading um, or study. So you're trying to get to a place where those drills, those physical exercises and kind of the goals and the, the, the monitoring, that the precision, the discernment that you bring are kind of leading you into a deeper uh, perception of what's going on inside your body, kind of your ideas of self, of, and then also the, the whole world, the what is going on here, and to all the way to like, why was I born, why am I here, or, and how to make the best out of the mystery of, of it all. And to me, there, it's not, uh, you can do it in a way, randomly, like just know that you practice and then that understanding of yoga evolves with time. But you can also uh, try to connect those dots more uh, directly, try to see like um, the skill building that you're doing in your yoga. Um, it's like the Bhagavad Gita, it says yoga is skill in action. And so the so d taking these small projects of a transition into a forward bend or a coming up into headstand, that these, um, they're very tangible and visible and uh, trackable examples of you in action. And that, so you're trying to build skill, but to 
entertain ideas, uh, more universal ideas of self. Uh, now that's more abstract. It's much harder to um, track. Or, or even like if you get into the ethics of yoga, like the very foundation, the, the yamas. Uh, so you've got the, uh, the very first yama of ahimsa. And so, and this is a very challenging um, principle to live by of non-harming, non-violence, non-aggression. And uh, it even says it in the Yoga Sutras that to follow the yamas constitutes a great vow. So you have to track your anger and your uh, tendency, your kind of instinctual tendency to protect yourself and to lash out or to run. Um, and, and there's so much um, habit and so much unconsciousness around the, our aggressive tendencies that uh, skill in action that enables you to practice it, ahimsa is, uh, you can say it's a higher level of skill in action than coming up into headstand, say. But they're very related. See, and that's uh, what you want to connect up, is that, that every action that you perform, um, you're looking to bring this consciousness to it and this um, really, this follow through of like um, setting up the action and then watching it or doing it, not watching it, but doing it, acting, and then, um, and then reflecting on your action, um, self-monitoring and making corrections. So, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, the, what's in the sacred texts is there's only one topic, really, when it comes down to it, and that is self, uh, with a capital S, and differentiating small self from uh, big self. And, and it doesn't matter which text you open. Okay, they, that's what they are about. So part of your practice is to crack open those texts and um, start to identify words or passages that speak to you and then repeat them. That is practice. Okay, and I'm going to give you two examples. Okay, and um, the first one is from a text called the Dakshinamurti Stotra, um, which is a Shiva text. So Dakshinamurti is the god that's facing south. So that's the god of death, uh, Shiva. And um, it has some beautiful passages. And in one, the, it often takes the, the, in the Upanishads and the various texts, it takes the form of a conversation between the student and the master or the teacher. And this is one of those. And so um, the student asks that how can Atman, so that's another word for self. Um, the indwelling um, divinity within each individual is called Atman. And then, so how can Atman, the self with a capital S, be the all-knower and all-doer? And so you're looking for these clues of what is what is differentiates small self from large self. Well, large self um, is the all-knower, the all-doer. Uh, right? Uh, which is something like the student asks, how can that be? How can something be all-knowing? And how can something be the source of all-doing that exists in the whole uh, universe? Right? 
because the small self certainly isn't all-knowing or all-doing, right? You can see that just right away. All right, so then the guru, the teacher says as follows. So he says that all things which we perceive, all things that we perceive exist within uh, the self with a capital S, the Parama Atman. So the Atman is the individual um, piece of divinity within each person, but the Parama Atma is the beyond, the whole entirety, um, the, the kind of self that's, that's all, um, the highest self. Okay, so it says, yeah, all things which we perceive exist here within this um, Parama Atma, and the highest self. And within is the whole of this universe, the, the entirety of the universe. But by Maya, by the illusion, it appears as external. Okay, so that self seems like it's out. If it exists at all, it's outside of this somehow. And it, by Maya, it appears as external, like one's own body in a mirror. <laughs> I love that image. So it, it appears to be external, like seeing your body in a mirror. And, but then, and then it goes into this uh, dream um, analogy. So it says, just like in a dream, and with the universe um, existing in, in yourself is seen as if it were external. Um, right? So when you dream, you're, you're so into the dream, you feel like you're just in a world. You're not... Um, having pictures that are happening within your body, right? It's just like you're in the world of the dream. And that's what it says. Just like in a dream, the universe is existing. Um, the, the universe existing in one's own self is seen as if it were external. And then it says, and, th and that is how it is in waking state that this universe um, exists within, within the self, and yet appears to be external. Uh, and then it says, um, it is certain that the existence of objects seen in a dream, they're not independent of the existence of one own, one's own self, right? All those things that you conjure in your dreams, that, like running or flying or just all those strange scenes, they're, they're all being generated from within your body and mind. Okay, and then it says, what, is, what difference is there then in the objects of the waking consciousness? Right, so, so it's saying that this here, it, everything appears to be um, kind of outside and disconnected, but it's not so. Okay, and, um, and then it, it, it's funny, it adds this little, what difference is there in the objects of the waking consciousness, um, impermanent and insentient? As even though even though they're impermanent and insentient, <laughs> to add that little uh, little piece, okay, and um, right, and and that's another clue about the difference between the small self and the big self. So the the small self is impermanent, right? That it's constantly changing. It uh, is conceived, born, lives, dies. That's everything that we see in the world, including us and um, the parts that we're made of. Um, so there, and, in, and it says that it's insentient, like that in a way that this, 
the yoga views all this um, visible material as kind of just stuff, and that it's the self with a large S is permanent. It's eternal. Okay, it doesn't go through a cycle of conception, living, uh, conception, birth, living, dying, and um, it's always was, is now, and always will be. Right. So. Very um, challenging, very paradoxical. And then it's also sentient. It's, the, it's the, the life. It's the thing that, it's light, it's intelligence, it's consciousness. It's the stuff of life is that root self that's at the heart of us. Okay. And, um, and then it says, in a dream, things appeared by the light of one's own self, right? That the dream, that's the, everything that you, that's in a dream is generated by you. And then, um, and there, there is then indeed no other light. That dream is not coming from another source. And the wise have concluded that the case is just the same, even in the waking, <laughs> but in a much grander sense that the, all these objects that appear are coming from the light of the self, right? And so you can see that uh, you want the practice, this, these very uh, small exercises that help you um, sort through the layers, because you need this um, very astute uh, perception, um, sharp discernment, to negotiate these um, very deep and profound layers of self and, and, um, and intuit. See, that's a kind of, you come to a, an intuitive place of uh, a unity, you see, and that's really the, the cool part about that dream analogy. It's really saying that everything here is interconnected. Right? Everything has a very deep relationship to each other to the point of there's only one self in existence and everything is contained within it. Right? And that, that's how you can get to a principle like ahimsa and the other yamas because harming anything, being aggressive towards anything is being aggressive towards yourself because you are the entirety. Right, and so this is a very different mentality than feeling like you are just your small little self, and then against everything else, and then needing to defend or um, or protect or lash out in um, self-preservation. Okay, and then lastly, um, I love this one. So this is another um, conversation between a sage and a and a king, actually. And um, so the king is asking the sage this beautiful question. So it's, and it's, um, his name is Janaka, the king. It's a famous king in the stories. And Yagnyavalkya. So Yagnyavalkya is a, is a famous sage. And, um, and so he, Janaka, the king, asks Yagnyavalkya, says, what serves as the light for a human being? Okay, and then, and so Yagna Valkna walks him through this um, very um, 
from the most um, literal kind of physical to the most profound in, in a nice progression. So he says, it's the light of the sun, your majesty. Um, the light of the sun is the light for a person, right? For by the light, um, the light of the sun, a person sits, goes out, does their work and returns home, right? Just this light here that the sun is providing. And Janaka, then he goes, true indeed, um, sir. But when the sun has set, then what serves as the light? And the, the Yagnavalkna says, the moon is the light. And then Yagnavalkna says, but when the sun has set and the moon has set, then what serves as the light? And the, the sage says, fire. The fire is the light then. So the light of the moon, it gives the light, but then when that goes away, then it's the fire in the hearth or in the, the bonfire that gives the light, okay? But then when the sun has set and the moon has set and the fire goes out, what's the light then, um, Yagnya Valkya? And, and he says, sound is, is a person's light, for with sound alone as the, your light, a person sits, goes out, does their work and returns home. Even though they cannot see, their own hand, yet they, they hear a sound and move towards it, okay? And so the king comes back and says, true indeed. But So when the sun has set and the moon has set and the fire has gone out and there's no sound is heard, what serves as the light? And then finally, the Agnya Valkna says, the self with a capital S indeed is your light. For by the light of the self, a person sits moves about, does their work, and when and returns home when it's done and rests. So cool. And what I love about that too is it's poetic, right? And so graphic and awesome. But it's also um, reminding you, just to me, that so the things that you're trying to uh, extract like the, from this knowledge of the big self are the unity, the, the, the interconnectedness of everything. So then you become not just a, your own individual ego concerned, but a bigger concern with the whole world itself. And then you're able to practice the yamas. And, um, and then the other thing is this um, self-sufficiency or self-reliance or um, independence, right? And um, this is something yoga teaches you to stand on your own. And so that series of external sources of light, that's practical things. Like there's so many things outside that we rely on, um, materials and work and relationships. But really at the heart of it, it's this, um, this deep identification with the sacred self that, um, that provides the light, provides what we need to... Um, to work our way and be do our thing in this life. Okay, so so it's funny to me the idea of do your practices and all is coming. You see, because that's the original spirit of the of that saying, and of course we want, um, I, I like I like do your deliberate practice and all is coming, but. To be fair, you can do any practice, and if you do it long enough and stay with it, then knowledge will come, and you'll, and, but the thing with deliberate practice is that, you see, so much of our learning comes from um, suffering, 
for making mistakes and repeating those mistakes until we've really experienced the consequences and gotten knocked down, right? And, um, and then finally something, some light shines for us. And so deliberate practice, it's kind of an effort to learn and grow by, with, without undue suffering, right? So kind of minimizing suffering and, and not relying so much on failure to learn, but uh, more on skill and, and uh, understanding the consequences, uh, the, the, the short and long-term consequences of our actions and being able to um, act with more uh, awareness and therefore skill and reaching our target with more ease. Okay, so do your practice and all is coming is true. You, if you stick with it, no matter what your practice is, eventually some kind of wisdom, real wisdom is going to come for you. But, but why not help yourself out by um, adding the word deliberate and investigating in the way that I've uh, listed out in this podcast. So anyway, um, that will do it. So I hope you enjoyed it. And I can tell you that this course that I have coming up, uh, the Mysore Foundations, are six weeks starting October 19th that meets on Tuesdays and Fridays. Um, you can do it live or with a recording. I'm going to really teach um, you how to build an effective practice for yourself. So if you already have a strong practice, this can give you ideas and help you improve on it. And then if you're just getting established, well, then this can really set you on the right path. Okay, and um, the format of the class is that on Tuesdays, it'll be a much more structured kind of led class where I'm really presenting you with the specific um, ways that I want you to work on the various um, transitions and poses in the um, the foundations of practice, Surya Namaskara, standing and inversions, and the first series. And then Fridays, is um, it's more individual, um, broken, break, breaking into a smaller group and um, doing Mysore. Okay, and so you, the recorded version, uh, you, Tuesday really works, and, but it can work for um, Fridays too, even though it's a more um, individual, because... I give group projects within the, the, the Mysore setting, and it's just um, can be motivating. But of course, it's better to be there live if, if at all possible. All right, so uh, enjoy your practice, and thank you for joining me.